Welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lukas Wallrich and in this podcast I'm going to interview educators, researchers, innovators and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to use education to make the world a better place one way or the other. In this episode I'm speaking to Craig Jorals, a high school teacher from California, about some of his work on experiential and simulation-based education. So we'll be talking about a trial of human nature. We'll be talking about how they use a water fight to teach students about war. And we'll talk about how to set up such projects and incorporate their spirit into day-to-day -day teaching as well. Finally, we'll also discuss why gray is a very important color. So I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. I'd like to start with the trial of human nature and Particularly, I'd actually like to hear how you think it influences students. So maybe if students said anything particularly memorable about it, or so what's the impact on students? Um, I think there are a lot of impacts. Uh, for some students, it actually influenced their career choice. Uh, I've had a, I ran into a former student years, years later, and he came up to me and he told me it was because of the Golding trial that he'd become an attorney. So occasionally it has that kind of impact. Uh, with most kids, it's just that they get really engaged in the subject and they get engaged in the activity and they participate often in ways that they don't for any other activity. So as the Heath brothers pointed out, it becomes maybe the most memorable thing, academically at least, they did while they were at school. Yeah. That's, that's, of course, exactly how I found out about that in, in the book about the power of moments and how it's all about creating this, this very special academic moment. Because like in most schools, your sophomores learn about fascism in history class, read a lot of The Flies, the book by Golding, uh, that portrays violence as a large part of human nature. But then things take a turn. Can you explain how they take a turn? Oh yeah, I mean that's what we that's what we explore in the in the activity the most. We explore what are the sources of the violence, and because the kids, it's a big question, you know, nature nurture and the origin of violence that that nobody's really resolved. It gives them a lot of room to think, and then. So initially, whether there was a project or not, they'd be thinking pretty well. But we tried to tie the project to to that quest, that question. And because it was uncertain, because it was unresolved, there's a lot of interest in it. And then because it's tied to a project that adds other elements, it puts several layers on a uh, school activity. And I think that's what makes it rich and complex for the kids and makes it engaging for so many kids. Mm -hmm. And as I understand that the starting point is that Golding is charged with libels, with misrepresenting human nature. Um, where does it go from there? Yeah, so a few weeks into the unit, when uh, we try to time it so it's when the first violence starts breaking out on the island in the book, we introduce a complaint, uh, which is how a legal lawsuit starts in the United States. And then we give them a role ch choice sheet and they get to choose the role that they want to do. It's controlled choice. They list their top three choices, and we try to give them their first choice. But if more than one kid wants the same role, then we make a decision based on what they've written. And then once they've got their roles, we've got an attorney packet and judge packet for the kids who are playing judges and attorneys. And we've got a whole set of instructions about research for the kids who are witnesses who are going to learn research skills, research their character, and then write a witness statement. Um, for their character. And it's the witness statements that the kids write that are used as the materials for the trial. The attorneys and the, and the, the attorneys make their questions and form their statements and arguments from the kids' witness statements. So while we're teaching the content, we're also giving them time and teaching them to do research. And we have two deadlines for the witness statements. Uh, the first deadline for us to be able to give some feedback. And then the second deadline is the draft that they're going to use in the trial. That's, in a sense, their statement um, for the trial. And, I mean, I read some of the names of possible witnesses, of course, kind of Gandhi, Hitler. Uh, who are the most impactful witnesses that stand out in your memory? 
the most impactful and you know it really depends on the kid uh that's one of the reasons why it's powerful is that there are some stock witnesses that are usually big and do well so for example from the scientific side we almost always uh, on the testifying for the defense we almost always have a sigmund freud and almost always a jane goodall um, and those two witnesses usually have an impact on the trial. But on the plaintiff side, it, it could be anybody depending on what they've researched and, and who they are. So if they're good, you know, if, if a kid really gets into it, they can make somebody like John Locke look interesting or they can have a historical figure um, and who they choose or some right now, the rage and we've been debating about this is a lot of the kids really like to choose their favorite rapper. Um, so that can be interesting. Mike Tyson has always been an interesting witness, uh, kids deciding which side that they think he should testify on. Um, so we have noble characters. We have infamous characters. It really depends on what the kids do with it. Okay. And once, once they have figured that out and written the witness statements, How does the actual trial work? How long does it go for? Yeah, so the, the they have to practice, obviously. The attorneys have to write the questions for the direct examinations. They have We give them time to practice with their witnesses, time to prepare for their trial. And then we, we take a day. We take a whole day. It doesn't take a whole day to do the trial, but to get down to the courthouse, to abide by the courthouse rules, to take a, a lunch break. The trial usually lasts about four to five hours, depending on the size of the class. It's usually about four to seven minutes per kid. So generally, every everyone gets to speak? Well, that's part of the thing, too, is that everyone gets to speak, everyone has to make their points, and then everybody is subject to cross-examination. So... In our view, it isn't just fun and games. In our view, it's one of the most challenging things that we ask them to do um, over the course of the year because they're in front of their peers, and that's part of the design. And they don't want to look dumb. They want to look good. They don't want to be, you know, in their terminology, they don't want to be roasted by other kids. So there's a there's that moment of drama. It's a little stressful for some kids, um, but it's one of those things where you're in front of your peers, you want to do well. And that's a big part of the power as well. What's the moment like when the, when the verdict is delivered? Uh, it depends. Um, usually uh, the, the kids that, that win cheer and the other ones, they don't cheer, but they don't look so you know, happy. Uh, I can't claim that every kid is at the edge of their seat when that happens because four to five hours is a long time in the life of a teenager. And it also depends on how invested they've been and whether their name's been mentioned in the closing argument. That's one of my favorite parts, the kids who stay in character the whole time and are listening attentively to the closing argument. And when they hear their name, they either perk up or they, or they frown, depending on how their name's been used. So it, just like anything else, there are a variety of reactions when the kids, uh, when the verdict is read. And that's part of our planning principles is, is we can't predict what it's going to be. You know, we occasionally have a dud of a trial where there's not much reaction at all. But often there's a real strong reaction from the kids. And I think you've, you've been running this since uh, almost 20 years ago. We, the first trial was in 1989. So it's been 30 years. So what has changed over that period? Has the format stayed pretty much um, the same? Several things have changed. Uh, before, uh, although we knew about the law, I got acquainted with the law a lot more uh, through working on mock trial for many years. So the first thing that's changed is we train our lawyers, our attorneys way better. The attorneys for the first trial didn't really know what they were doing. Uh, now, because we have a mock trial culture at the school and because we know how to train and coach them, our attorneys do a really nice job. So there's that. When we first started the trial, our curriculum was all social science. So on the history side, we did more psychology and more anthropology because that's part of my background. 
Um, and because the the curriculum's now mostly history, we have more of a history emphasis. It's kind of pretty even between the history and social science emphasis in terms of the content. In terms of the, the biggest change is that we started it with honors kids, kids who were supposedly advanced and brought it to every kid. And by doing that, we've had to take more time. And we've also opened up the possibilities for who kids are going to be as witnesses. So we had our list of witnesses and most kids took that list of witnesses and uh, ran with it. And now kids are choosing their own more. And of course, that's been facilitated by the internet. When we started this, it was pre-internet. So it was harder to research and harder to access information about more people. So in a way, it's been democratized uh, a lot over the years. Where do you personally take the energy from to do this year after year? It's a lot harder than just teaching the same class. <laughs> well, well, you know, what's interesting is that it, it is and it isn't. Um, for me, it's actually much easier because since the project works, you don't have to create it again. So when you do it again, all the energy goes into the coaching and the grading. And for me, that's part of what I like the best. And actually, in terms of work, for me now, it's actually less work than if I have to create a whole new unit of content. And it's more rewarding. You know, so we've tried to take that coaching aspect of the project. And we do a lot of other projects that have that coaching aspect as well. And so we infuse that through a lot of our other units. And I find once you get a really good project going, it's actually easier to manage that project than it is to create new stuff. That's, that's, that's interesting to uh, hear. It took, it took a lot of time and energy to create it. <laughs> that, was, that took a lot of time and energy for sure. And then the grading is still a lot. It's still a lot of grading. And the coaching forces you to make a lot of decisions, a lot of personal decisions with the kids, what this kid needs, what that kid needs, um, this knowledge, that knowledge. So it's a hard project to do if you don't know about your subject and you're not familiar with coaching. And so our projects are pretty demanding that way. But we've seen teachers get through their first time, but as they get more accustomed to it, they get better at it, and then they get better results from the kids. Um, what actually comes to mind now that you speak about the grading is how that actually fits into the kind of the structure of the curriculum. Because I suppose your students in the end need a grade in history, a grade in social studies, a grade in English, and none of these kind of traditionally reflects courtroom advocacy. So how, how does that work? Well, the courtroom advocacy is just a small part of it because most of the kids are playing the wit are playing witnesses, and so that the skills that they're learning are speaking skills, evidence gathering, analysis, thinking on their feet, uh, content knowledge, having the content knowledge to respond to questioning, and those are skills they're going to use for the rest of their lives, and. This is kind of anticipating your second, one of your questions, but those are skills that we have in our rubric for our senior defense. And so the, what we're teaching them in the trial is really good preparation for their senior defense, which we believe is also good preparation for further academic work, for interviews, for, for their future careers as well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. You already, you already mentioned the battle. Um, so. Let's let's maybe move on to that uh, because to me it sounds similarly spectacular to to the trial. The key difference between the battle and the trial is that the trial is done at other schools. It, it's the kind of thing that it's not the the only issue for for other teachers at other schools is whether they're willing to take the time to do it. But you know, even before the Heath brothers book, you know, we presented the trial. It was in another book. Uh, people do the trial. People at other schools can get the materials and they can go and they can do it, right? How well depends on how much the teachers themselves develop experience, but it can transport and it's not very controversial. Whereas the battle, I, I, you know, only a few other people have tried the battle because it's pretty controversial to do it. So that's the starting of all the things we do. It's one of the most controversial, um, but it's also for a lot of kids, the most engaging and the most memorable. Okay, so can can you introduce what it is about? 
the battle? Yeah. So the battle, you know, the kids were reading All Quiet on the Western Front um, in English. And we were studying World War One and history. And, and we really wanted them to understand the war better. We want both the sort of chain of command and why it was such a bloody war. But we also wanted them to, in a small way, and this is what's controversial, understand what it might feel like to be under fire. And so when we were talking about this and thinking about what we wanted to do with the war, because we had sort of developed these principles that we'd learned from the trial, and we were trying to figure out how to apply them. And, you know, there's this long brainstorming period. But what struck me the most was when I asked my father, my father is a World War II vet. He's got a purple heart. He was wounded in battle. And I asked him, well, what would you want to get across if he were teaching this about the experience of war? And he just said flatly to me, he goes, anybody who has one minute of combat experience, their lives will change forever. And so we knew we couldn't do that for real, but could we create a little bit of that psychological and emotional experience where kids could feel the same kind of fear or in part exhilaration, part fear, part camaraderie that real soldiers do. And that's what we've attempted. That to me, if you were going to ask, is the main point of the battle. There are a lot of other things that go with it, but that's the one thing that we want to try to get that idea of I'm going in and I don't know what's going to happen. And since we have them, you know, where the try to stay silent the rest of the day, that idea that this thing could be final or I'm scared or I'm excited or I'm lose my sense of who I am or, you know, that kind of feeling is what we're most trying to get across. There are a lot of other things the communication, the chain of command, uh, why there was such slaughter. But to me, that's the thing that, that is most important about the battle. And for some people, they find that inappropriate. How, how do you generate that? Because, I mean, in a sense, it's an intense water fight that many young people experience, usually without perceiving it as a, as a kind of combat experience. So, so how do you create uh, that experience? Yeah, and again, I I'm not going to claim that, that every kid feels that. But one of the, the ways that we do that is that the kids have to write an autobiography. So they have to research uh, the period, and they have to research World War One, and they have to create a character, and they have to create a background for their character. They have to write a short story, so they get instruction in, in story writing in English about their character away from battle. And then they have to write a letter home before the battle, and then they have to write their battle account. And so the kids don't just walk in as high school kids. Yeah, they're high school kids, and a lot of them maybe don't think about their character while they're in the battle. But a lot do. And so they're walking in there not just as themselves, but at the, as this sort of fictional soldier that they've created. We also have the chain of command. We create officers. Once we give the roles and we create officers and regular soldiers, then it's all up to them. All the plans, everything is student generated. So that adds a little bit to it as well. And uh, the idea, the other thing that we do is the idea that once they're dead, they're dead. We, they have to stop fighting and then they have to remain silent. Now, we can't enforce that in other classes, but we can enforce that in our own class. So those are some of the things that we do to keep it from just being the water fight that somebody who came in from the outside and didn't know all the prep work might perceive. And it does matter for a lot of kids. Uh, that part of it. I can't claim for all kids or I can't even claim for the majority of the kids, but just getting some of the kids to feel that is, is extremely powerful. Yeah. How do you respond to people who find that? Actually, what, what are the criticisms usually? There have been two big criticisms over the years and then one more recently. And the first criticism is that it's glorifying war. You know, by putting so much attention on it, kids are going to come to like war. And my response to that is that, first of all, it's not true. Our casualty rates and what we teach in class and, you know, the novel itself are anti-war. 
few kids ever walk away from our experience and say, oh, war is great. Um, so I, I don't think that criticism is real valid. The second criticism is it's just a water fight. Your kids aren't really learning anything. But for this activity, the kids have to write two essays and write the first two sections of their autobiography before they're allowed to participate. And you'd be amazed the kids who are scrambling and struggling and and showing up to try to get that work done so that they can do it. So I think it, academically, it's it's pretty strong, actually. It's not just a water fight. The water fight is tied with all these other lessons that they have. So, for example, one of the other lessons we have is, is we have a, in our history teaching, we have a big emphasis on source evaluation and what they call historical thinking. And so after the battle, they have to write an account of what happened in the battle. And we create a document set and they do essentially a document-based question about what happened in the battle, having to use all their source evaluation skills. So I think academically it has its chops as well. And then the third criticism and the third and fourth have appeared more recently. The third criticism has been that it's Eurocentric. It's all about sold white men. Um, and you may know we have a, a California is about to mandate an ethnic studies uh, course. There's a lot of people who are trying to diversify the curriculum. And so they don't like the fact that it's a unit about white men. And my counter to that is that uh, most kids seem to like it no matter who they are. And most kids seem to get engaged and most kids seem to do, be willing to do the work that sometimes they're not willing to do. And then the fourth criticism, and this is more recent, is that because of the school shootings, because it might glorify violence, um, that it might, you know, that it's inappropriate. And my response is similar to the or the other criticism is, is I don't think it glorifies violence or has any connection to school shootings. So those have been the four main criticisms. Um, what I was thinking when I when I was thinking about some young people I have worked with was just that it could be quite traumatic for for people who have some kind of personal uh, connection to to war or, or violence. Have you experienced yeah, that? We've heard that too. Like you know, I've heard that it, it does a disservice to anybody. Well, there's there's that part, but there's also the fact that it's dishonoring veterans. So I'll do the dishonoring veterans first. And the the first part of that is that uh, I haven't seen that. You know, I did this with to honor veterans, to honor that idea that combat is so intense. It's something we should respect. I did it in a way to honor my father. So I haven't seen that at all. We've gotten no complaints from veterans groups. As far as the trauma, though, I think because it's a whole school event, And because we have so much prep for it and so much debriefing, we haven't seen that part of it. We haven't seen kids say, I can't do this. Uh, this, this would make me too traumatized. Now, with the school shootings, that's been one of the arguments that it would. But we haven't seen that. And maybe it's because so much comes before and so much comes afterward. All the debriefing, all the writing, their awareness that it is a simulation. Um, that's one of the things that we haven't seen so much and people haven't brought up as criticisms. It, 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 they may be valid, but we haven't had to react to those and respond. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might also help that they are in such strong characters. I think that's, that's pretty much unique that they develop really this, this identity. Yeah. And some really do care about their identity, especially the creative writers, um, And kids who, you know, we do a lot of expository writing, and this is this is one of the few narrative writings that we do. And a lot of kids really go to town because they get to, you know, and we've gotten better at avoiding anachronisms and better uh, at helping them with their research to make sure it's more grounded in reality, too. So that's been good. One thing I found fascinating was how you said that it really engages some students into, into writing and into the preparation who might otherwise uh, be struggling more. Have you seen that last? Or is it more an effect that you only have as long as they, there's the special incentive? 
<laughs> well, it's interesting that you use the term special incentive. I think one of the reasons for teaching through these projects, not just the trial and the battle, is that maybe our curriculum should always have special incentives. You know, those incentives that are that, that help with internal motivation and external motivation. You know, so the Heath brothers talk about elevation and pride and insight and community. You know, our principles are uncertainty and community. You know, they should have an interesting question. What's going to happen in war? They should have a say in how their classroom activity is going to turn out. They should have a chance to be creative and they should have a sense of always, you know, doing something with their group, with the community through some kind of ritual. You know, we have a lot of extracurricular activities in our school, like sports and drama and music, and they have all those elements. So why shouldn't we have those special incentives as part of our daily and ongoing work in the classroom? You know, to me, that's that's what inspired us, Those that thinking is what inspired us to create these kind of activities and to continue them. And the more and more that you have them in your classroom, the more motivated kids are going to be. It is hard to sustain. We have some kids who really get up for this and we can't get them as involved in, in other things. But every time we have a, a really good project, they tend to be motivated and tend to perform. And so that tells me that it's our job to improve our curriculum and our assessment and instruction through really engaging work um, throughout the entire year, right? Not just in a few special times. And we are able to sustain that. We don't have great projects for our entire two-year loop, but we have other projects that, that, that keep it going as well. And to me, that's the way we should be teaching. It shouldn't be thought of as special incentives. It should be, this is what we do and how we do it. Do you have any smaller ways in which you try to bring that into the classroom or is it mostly about developing these, these bigger projects kind of step by step? No, we do in small ways. We do that with case studies and scenarios and mini simulations. Uh, kids like we so we have a justice framework that we have in our classroom and kids really love the ethical dilemmas and, and scenarios that's the kind of thing that will even if it isn't involved in a, a huge project or activity that's the kind of thing that will engage and involve more kids because what you do is you tie their personal experience uh emotions that they have to some large, deep intellectual question, right? And that tends to be what grabs kids the most. And so it doesn't have to be a huge project. It can happen within your lessons. How do you find the key essential question, the deep learning that's ongoing? And this obviously works best in a humanities class. Um, but in science, there are a lot of unresolved questions and big questions that you can look at. And then how do you tie it to make sure that the curriculum and content is strong and to find a way to bring in both their emotion and their intellect. And that's how you frame curriculum. Dewey calls it psychologizing subject matter, you know, getting the lure, getting the hook. You can do it in small ways in, in classes. Uh, I just like the big projects because they are so memorable. They bring in that element of ritual, which is harder to do on a day-by-day -day basis in a smaller basis in your classroom. Do you maybe have a specific example for, for a smaller thing that you do in your classroom that you find successful? Yeah. I mean, one of our most successful days is when we introduce theories of justice. And so we've created a justice framework. A lot of it is based on Michael Sandel's book, Justice. And we just give them a series of scenarios and we give them the background on the theories and then we give them a, a, a series of scenarios. We they discuss and debate the scenarios. We we uh, go back and forth and then we tie the scenarios to the particular theory that we're trying to teach. And that brings in every single kid uh, and kids are pretty darn engaged with that. Um, and so one of the things you look for is you look for, uh, in whatever the subject is, what's the controversial part? What's the part where you're going to get multiple perspectives? What's the part that's unresolved? 
So, for example, when we were teaching Christianity, one of the hardest parts about Christianity is the level of forgiveness. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you have to forgive your enemy. You know, you have to forgive people who do wrong to you. So you you create scenarios uh, about those things and ask kids to work on those. And it's amazing how engaged they'll get. And it's amazing, amazing the kind of thinking they'll use and then the, the fact that they have to gather evidence or use evidence and then and then use analysis or reasoning to explain their evidence. So that's on a small scale. And then you try to tie those small things to larger ones. So for example, I, I saw from one of your podcasts, uh, you've talked to people from South Africa, but we do a whole unit on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings as well. And we give them case studies that they work and go through, you know, from that period. And that is all about restorative justice. So, you know, you can do a small daily lesson on, on the, the limits of forgiveness or the elements of forgiveness. You can show them a film of people forgave, forgiven or haven't. And then you can build that up into the larger thing where they actually run one of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission cases and then discuss and talk and write about what they think about restorative justice and, and whether forgiveness is possible. So you can do things on a small level, but then you, it's always really nice when you can then tie it to a larger project as well. Yeah, very interesting and inspiring um, examples. Are there things that you had to learn or that you have seen um, maybe other people do in less than ideal ways when it comes to uh, bringing more of this project-based and engaging learning into the classroom? Yeah, I think the hardest part is, like you said, these aren't easy to teach. And I think there's two things that make it hard for te other teachers to do these. And the first is that when you do a project and you think it's skill-based, you often think that you don't need to have the content knowledge. But one of the things that, that I've discovered both in teaching and in kids' work is that you can't really coach well as a teacher and you can't really do good analysis as a student unless you have that content knowledge basis. And I think there's been a movement in education away from content teaching. You know, it makes sense. You don't want to drill and kill and give some standardized tests that they're going to forget the next day. But I think a lot of teaching instruction, teacher preparation has gone too far the other way especially with the internet, like we don't need to know anything. All we need to know is to know how to teach skills. And one of the things I've seen is when teachers who don't really know the content have a hard time teaching these projects, they often find them either overwhelming or often they can't coach well enough. The kids don't produce good enough work. So they think they don't think the projects are good. So it takes a, an experienced and knowledgeable teacher and one practice with coaching um, to do this well. And I've seen teachers who, who've done these at our school and now they're into their sixth, eighth, 10th year, and now they're good at it. And they realize the power of the project because they've become much better at it. Um, so that's one thing that I've learned, uh, that I've seen with this kind of teaching. Um, you know, so it is hard. It is hard to do. It's hard to create because it, you have to, take a lot of time. You have to learn the subject. You have to be on a good team. I was fortunate to work with Susan and then later Karen. They're amazing, right? And great colleagues and creative, smart people. And so you have to find a good team. If You have to put the time in and you have to be willing to learn. And the other part is a lot of teachers are very conservative. They're in teaching because they've been good at school and often school is good at following what you're supposed to do. And so here you have to take risks and you have to be able to deal with not knowing exactly what's going to happen. And I love that. That makes it exciting for me. It keeps school from getting boring. I keep learning. I still don't know that the answers to the questions I'm asking the kids um, but for some teachers, that loss of control is hard because, you know, things could happen and things could happen that you're not sure how to respond to. What's been remarkable is we haven't had a lot of the things that have happened that have told us you need to shut this down. It's hurt a kid too much or or the kid can't do it or or whatever. 
Um, but some teachers are afraid of that. And now there's, there's been an uprise in anxiety in the schools. And so a larger minority of kids are having trouble with the projects um, because of anxiety. So I think for some teachers, this is a tough way to teach. But for a lot of teachers, it's their favorite thing that they do because the kids love it so much. You know, they see the response in the kids and, and they keep doing the projects because they know it gets the kids in ways that that other things don't. Um, yeah, I think you already hinted at uh, at one element when you spoke about your close colleagues. But looking at Hillsdale, it's it's a state school. You seem to have quite typical um, students. So what is it that enabled you to develop such a dynamic curriculum? <laughs> I, well, a couple of things. Uh, I think it was the timing, um, one, and I think it's because we had a really supportive administration. So I'll start with the supportive administration. You know, when Susan and I first talked to each other and thought we could do something interesting around Lord of the Flies, based on what she was teaching and based on my academic background and what I was teaching, we went to the administration and they gave us all these release days. They gave us all this time. They sent us to conferences. They let us, they gave us time to plan. Uh, they basically gave us a green light to go ahead and, and do what we were doing. And so having a supportive administration was really, really helpful. And then once the project started coming along and they saw the response of the kids, uh, that helped too. So it might have helped that when we were creating these projects, we had the principal's kids in our classes so he could see what was going on in part, you know, but in part, it was also the climate. There wasn't such a high level of accountability so that it was easier to try something and take risks and maybe fail. You know, I think in the last 15 or 20 years, there's such been such a high degree of accountability that I think it stifles this kind of uh, work. You know, Susan and I, when we talk, we think, I'm not sure we could have done this in the testing accountability equity climate that exists now where, where they're keeping track of every single kid and they, they're watching you and they're publishing your grades and, and those kind of things. You know, as a young teacher, would I have been willing and able to have taken that kind of risk? So I think that we were in an era that where there was a little more freedom to play. So those two factors, the supportive administration and related, would that administration have been so supportive uh, in the current climate or the climate we've had since the testing uh, movement started about 20 years ago? So I think that's why it was able to happen at, at Hillsdale. So, you know, so some of it was luck. Uh, finding people and and a particular time, and some of it was intentional. You know, we had people who were supportive. My my first principal knew about the Coalition of Essential Schools, uh, and a lot of, of what we do is based on their work. And she sent me. To, she sent us to conferences. You know, to to further that. She she allowed us to to meet. So that was definitely intentional. But would that intention be harder in this current climate? You know, I don't know. You know, Hillsdale has a, such a tradition. We still do some crazy things that our administration supports. So, I, but that could only be because we have that tradition, right? We've established a track record. So, yeah, I think that's why. Um, one other thing I read about Hillsdale that I thought was very interesting was that you assigned students to four houses that aren't about athletic competitions, but that are about kind of learning in the humanities. How does that work? You know, that's part of the smaller learning community reform. We have four teachers. We have math, science, English, and history, at least in ninth and 10th grade. And we four teachers keep the same setting, not completely, because in math, it, it gets a little muddled. But we essentially keep the same group of kids for two years. And, um, you know, that in some parts came, sprang from the humanities that we do, but it's in a way independent. We did the humanities projects before the smaller learning communities. It's one of the things that led to the smaller learning communities. But the idea of the smaller learning communities is you have four teachers 
who can follow kids for two years. And that develops personalization. Uh, it develops some joint projects that you can do curricularly. Um, but it creates a community for the kids as well and makes it easier for each kid to develop a kind of academic identity so they can feel tied to the school and tied to academic work. Yeah, it probably allows a lot more collaboration between the teachers as well, if, if the relationships can yeah, form there. Yeah, you know, at Hillsdale, we have collaboration within our subject matter. We have humanities collaboration, and then we have our house collaboration with our colleagues who share the same students. And so most teachers at Hillsdale now have three, at least three collaborations, if not more, right, with people in their department. If they're a history or English teacher, with their, their history or English teacher, humanities partner, and then with their four teachers who are on their team. And so uh, it's a lot of collaboration and that has its own rewards and its own problems as well. For sure. Uh, but do you, do you manage in that context to, to strike up um, more unconventional collaborations? So are there things you do together with math teachers and maybe even science teachers or is it more? Well, what's interesting is we've had advisory projects that we've created Uh, our house has a chalk mural project that we do. We have an interview project that we've created as part of our advisory teams and our house teams. But in terms of all four subjects creating like the super project, um, we worked on that, but it's been hard. Uh, it's been hard to create that kind of super project that, that brings in all four subjects in a way that really has integrity. I think it's easy to bring in all four subjects in a superficial way, but it's harder to bring in all four subjects where it, it matters as much as it does in our humanities projects. You know, our humanities project, there's a key English component and there's a key social science or history component. Um, but I've personally never seen a project and we've, We've gone to conferences. We've been, you know, Hillsdale's been part of a network with schools doing a lot of interesting things. I've personally never seen that that one project that gives what each subject deserves and, and is still at the same time coherent. Uh, I think there are a sub, couple of subjects that lend themselves to that. And we've tried, but we haven't really been able to have that kind of project. That would be great. I would love for that to happen, but it hasn't really happened. And partly at Hillsdale because things started mostly in the humanities um, and partly because of our advisory structure, uh, partly maybe because it is really hard or maybe we haven't been uh, clever enough to figure it out or, or given the time or we haven't had the people who are, are motivated to do that. There are schools that are trying that. But when I've seen their projects, I haven't quite seen that one where I just go, wow, that hits every subject beautifully. I just have a final couple of questions more, more about you. Um, and I think the first one would be that you've already mentioned quite a few influences on your thinking about teaching and education. Um, is there maybe one thing or just a couple of things in particular that listeners should check out in terms of thinkers or books or anything of the sort? Um, well, I think one thing that influenced me is the, is that my background was in anthropology. And so in anthropology, you learn about culture, you learn about ritual, you learn about rites of passage. You also, it's an interdisciplinary subject. Um, you know, there's psychological anthropology and there's linguistic anthropology and, right, they used to joke it was the imperialist you know, academic uh, discipline because it would go prey on all these other subjects. And so I think that helped in terms of having an interdisciplinary outlook on curriculum. So I would say the sort of general training there, you know, the trial was influenced most by uh, Clifford Gertz's essay, The Impact of the Concept of Culture on the Concept of Man, and his book, The Interpretations of Culture. Um, I think uh the other influences in terms of the education field i was you know in my teacher training i was influenced most by uh, john dewey and and jerome bruner that idea of 
finding a way, finding that curriculum thing, finding that thing that people would be curious about. And then I think the third biggest influence was being involved in the coalition of essential schools and that insight about trying to make academics more like the extracurriculars. You know, Ted Sizer in his uh, Horace books, you know, why when kids think about high school, do they just remember the prom and their sports and all that kind of stuff? And why don't we bring that into the classroom? So uh, I think those are probably the three. I can send you uh, a list of you know, all the other things that, that we read and we thought about. That must be wonderful. They'll definitely then go into the show notes. Yeah, but for me, those I would say those are probably the three that have influenced me the most. Um, and on a personal level, I always hated standardized tests. So I thought that we had to find a way to assess students uh, in a richer way that, that measured more of and showed more of who they are. And that's part of the work that we do. And, and that part's a little political, actually, you know, trying to show that you can assess students without a standardized test. And, you know, Hillsdale has a senior defense. We're part of a, an assessment collaborative with other schools that do performance assessments. Um, and so there's that element of it as well. And is is that generally uh, meeting a positive uh, reception among among parents and and other stakeholders? Or are there many who are missing the objectivity of the standardized test? It's it's mixed. I mean, some think it's great that we're doing this with our kids, and some kids and parents think, "Why are you doing that? Nobody else is making you do that, right?" So <laughs> I think it's I think it's definitely a a, a mixed reaction. Um, But I think we've had buy-in, and it's become part of our school culture. If you think back to the time you were starting out uh, in teaching, is there any advice you would give to your younger self with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, I mean, when as a younger teacher, I, I swirled back between I can do this better than others, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Uh, so I think it's pretty hard for a young teacher to get that kind of moderation. Um, so I think I would have, but I don't know if I'd had that moderation if there would have been this enthusiasm and passion to create these kind of things. Um, but I would say this, you know, seeing the younger teachers now is that just there's so many different ways to do things. And that's what I would say to myself as a young person, chill out calm down. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to be a good teacher. Don't judge. Yeah, I think that that would be a pretty good piece of advice. And, and I think as much as I believe in this way of teaching, there are so many ways to be a good teacher, so many ways to effectively educate students. I think it's important. I've been lucky that we've been able to sort of create our own path create our curriculum, in a sense, create a whole new school um, and have a lot of autonomy over what we do. And if I, I, I've been lucky that way. And, and I think that, that it's hard for teachers to think out of the box and realize that they can kind of create the kind of classroom and kind of school they want. And I think it was easier for us back then than it is right now. So uh, don't be so sure of yourself, but at the same time, follow your gut follow your instincts, learn more, and make your own decisions. Okay, and then a final question would be that if you could have a big billboard anywhere with anything on it, so to get a message out to the world, what would it say? Uh, I, You know, right now, I'd have to say it'd be simple, just see gray. See gray. In other words, don't be so dogmatic. Uh, don't be so sure of your position. If teaching these projects and teaching has taught me anything is that uh, there are multiple perspectives. There's lots of different ways. Uh, it's hard to come up with a definitive answer. Uh, it's hard to be so sure about what you believe in. Yeah, that's, that's critical. Thank you so much for your time. This was personally very inspiring and I think a really good conversation for the podcast. As we're wrapping up our conversation, Greg shared some more interesting anecdotes of what a trial and a battle might mean for students. So here you go for a minute of bonus material. We, we once had a group of kids who were really struggling, 
Um, and they were all D and maybe C and maybe F students, and they all chose to be attorneys um, for the trial. They spent two weeks coming to my classroom every single day after school to work on the trial. And some days, maybe they got 20% of the time with some work done, but that trial became their home and their community after school, and they did just fine you know, as attorneys, it was the best work that they'd done, you know, ever. Or for the battle, we had these really strong uh, group of, of young women the first time we ever did the battle. And uh, they marched into no man's land. They secured the, the objective that they were supposed to uh, secure, but they, it hadn't been communicated to them, which was normal in World War I for soldiers not to know what the heck they were doing and to make it to the opposing trench and have no idea what came next. And so they went back, and uh, when they found out that they'd actually secured the objective, but they hadn't held it, they went crazy, you know, on their commanding officers. And, you know, we had a gender, uh, mini gender lesson for three days because their commanding officers were guys. And, and we talked about gender roles and things like that. You know, so those kind of things happen a lot. And, you know, particular testimony where we had one kid was Mark Twain. He was one of our most brilliant kids. And another kid was an attorney. And they went back and forth for for several minutes um, on the stand. We had one kid who was one of our most disaffected students. And his cross-examination lasted for five minutes. He had this really high-powered student grilling him. He never backed down. And then at lunch, he was just kind of preening because he, he would have been like the star of the trial. You know, so or we had a mock trial team. Hillsdale has a good mock trial team. And we had a couple of kids who are attorneys who are mock trial attorneys who were actually in the Golding trial. We had another kid who wasn't a great student on the other side and his side won. He received the best attorney award and he'd realized he just bested kids who were competing in doing mock trial. You know, so we see stuff like that. Those kind of things we have happen all the time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback I'd love to hear from you, you can find my email address in the show notes. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get this podcast, that would also be much appreciated. Next time, I'm speaking to Ross Hall, who until recently led a global education work at Ashoka and is now the co-founder of Weaving Lab. He wants to change the way young people grow up worldwide to prepare them for a life of well-being and to prepare them to be change makers for themselves and their communities. So stay tuned. Um.